All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. Tonight we are going to be talking about Incredibles 2, which is going to be episode 117 of the show. This is um, one that we we did the first one, what, about a year ago, Robert, when this uh, movie was in theaters. And now it's on the old Netflix. And because we are the cheapskates that we are, and, uh, you know, throw us some dollar dollar bills at uh, the old Patreon, if you would. Uh, maybe we can do some current run movies. But now this is on the Netflix, so we're doing it now. Incredibles 2. How are you doing, sir? Oh, I'm wonderful, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show once again. Back at it. I like having you on. You've been on uh, 116 times now. This is the 116th episode with you as a uh, co-host. Is it? Wow. That sounds like a lot. Has it it? Yeah. I, it's amazing after doing that many episodes that we're still not very good at it. You'd think that after a while we'd, we'd get a little bit more proficient, maybe a little bit more entertaining. Yeah. Is, is, it, is there just a limit for each person that you can only get as good at a thing and then that's you just plateau out? Yeah, that's probably the genetic like ceiling, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we could probably improve a little bit more, you know, because you can always always marginally improve a little bit. It's like that Pareto thing, you know, 80-20. Uh, you can get 80% of the way good at 20% of the effort, but getting that last 10 or 20% is going to be like incredible effort. Yeah, we'd have to really prepare and write scripts and things. Uh, that sounds horrible. I have interesting things to say. Stop thumping the mic, banging the desk, breathing heavy, saying ums and ahs and you knows, you know, all that stuff. See, I just did it. Did it there's again. a lot of there's a lot of content where it's just people reacting to things. So you really don't want to prepare. And I, people seem to enjoy it. It's fine. It's conversational. That's what it is. Good. That's what's so good. All right. So we got a last nighters portion of the show that we do. And without further ado, are you good with doing that? You want you want to come? I'm, I'm, I'm willing to try anything once. All right. We'll try the last nighters here once for the Incredibles 2. Hey everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, The Last Nighters, and The Last Nighters is part of the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. Check it out and all the other shows at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Now, this is going to be episode 60 of The Last Nighters. You can find the show notes and more for this episode on Incredibles 2 at lastnighters.com slash 60. And before we get into that Google description, let's say hello to my co-host, Robert Johnson. How are you doing, sir? Hey, everybody. Glad to be back. We're going to talk about a fun one tonight. I agree. There's a lot going on in this one. And uh, without further ado, let's get into the old Google. So this came out 2018 science fiction and action movie, two hours and five minutes, 7.8 on the IMDb, 93% Rod Tomatoes, four out of five on Common Sense Media and 94% of the Google users like it. This was directed by Brad Bird, came out June 15, 2018, budget of $200 million. And check this out, the box office, $1.243 billion, with a B, Zal Hairs. So... Pretty, pretty successful with this one. 
So here is the description. Everyone's favorite family of superheroes is back in Incredibles 2. But this time, Helen is in the spotlight, leaving Bob at home with Violet and Dash to navigate the day-to-day heroics of normal life. It's a tough transition for everyone, made tougher by the fact that the family is still unaware of Baby Jack-Jack's emerging superpowers. When a new villain hatches a brilliant and dangerous plot, the family and Frozone must find a way to work together again, which is easier said than done, even when they're all incredible. Increíble. So we got Craig T. Nelson, Holly Hunter, we got uh, Samuel L. Jackson, we got uh, Slippin' Jimmy, Better Call Saul, alumni, and um, what's that guy's name? He played Hinky in a community. Playing what character? Uh, he was the government official guy, or their their handler. Oh, Dickers? Dickers? Yeah, yeah, something like that. It was uh, the guy who, um, he's in Better Call Saul, he was in Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah, when... Um... In Breaking he, Bad, when he when he kills them at the end, he's like the cleaner guy. Yeah, he's the old badass. You know, the the tough ex cop. Yeah, it's been so long since I watched that show, but I yeah, he was one of my favorite characters. Yeah, why I can't think of him right now, I have no idea. Anyway, uh, a lot of those folks are in this, and um, what do you say on that Google description there, Robert? Well, I'm surprised that it made that much money. I mean, I remember it being popular, and I know that they had built up a whole lot of you know, clout, or I guess you could say positive vibes from the first Incredibles, which was a fantastic film. And so any kind of sequel would ha- be riding high on the coattails of that. But I don't know. There's a lot of problems with this movie and there's some good stuff here too, but there's a lot of problems narratively that have been pointed out in some really good reviews that I've seen recently. But, um, you know, I think I- I'd rather get into the the fun discussions that I want to have in regards to the content of this movie, as opposed to some of the more uh, structural type debates or discussions. Like, I feel like some of those reviews has already been said in terms of like, you know, how you can make the movie better, how these things don't work and how these things do work. Um, But for you and me, I really want to get into uh, the nature of, well, we'll we'll talk about it, but the nature of the, the villain. And there's a couple discussions that the main characters have, which really triggered me in terms of, um, well, should we just jump right into it, Daniel? Now, when you say trigger, you don't mean like get your hate speech off my campus. You mean like triggered something in you or sparked an idea to have a cogent and rational discussion about. Yeah, whenever whenever I'm watching a movie for enjoyment and then I hear a phrase or they start talking about something interesting or relational to the show in a way, I'm like, ooh, there's something. There's a little nugget that we got to expand on because, you know, they'll the characters will say something and it'll kind of be implemented into the plot a little bit, but it really, it's almost like Brad Bird who wrote the movie and directed it was kind of trying to make a point in this movie. It really seemed like he was trying to make a, like a, make a claim, make a couple of claims in this film about the world in general. Did you get that feeling? Yeah. I I would say that he was bringing a lot of, uh, almost libertarian ideas to this. Like what is the nature of law versus morality? Which one trumps the other? What is legitimate? What isn't? Uh, What is the nature of society? What is the nature of politicians and politics? I felt a lot of that going into this. And I don't know if that's because that's how I look at everything and I'm looking for that stuff or if it's really there. No, it seemed like Bird was making a few like almost libertarian arguments, especially there are two main points at which I thought he was doing it. Well, three, but the hotel dinner argument. Oh, yeah. Very, very heavy. And well, it's illegal. So bad. And he's like, what if the law is wrong? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's good. Uh, So anyway, let's start at the beginning. 
You would. And this movie this movie takes off right at the end of the first movie. Although, you know, everybody's, you know, however much older and whatever, and it looks that much better and everything. But of course it's going to. But anyway, it starts off with the Underminer breaking up out of the earth. And he just wants to rob a bank, which is kind of strange. Like he's got this giant thing, which is going to attract a lot of attention. And then he's just like using a vacuum sucker to suck out a bunch of cash. And it makes me wonder, you know, what he's doing with the money. Like who's he, does he like, when he's not at the center of the earth, does he like get on Amazon or does he put it in some other bank or does he, I don't know, does he come out and like do some shopping? You know, I, I would think that with his, where he resides, he would be running into gold deposits here and there and, and mining gold and collecting that and uh, being totally rich beyond his uh, imagination in that respect. Why would he go and steal um, Federal Reserve notes? Some, some fiat some fiat currency. Yeah, it makes yeah. not much sense. It felt like it was just, we need him to, well, at the end of Incredibles 1, we just need a new villain to emerge to have a reason to have Incredibles 2. And so th- it doesn't really matter why he's there. It's just, you know, he, he presents himself as he wants to take over the world you know like nothing is beneath me but i'm always beneath you right but then he's just there to steal some cash and it seemed like he was there to do more and get away with it he is still free by at the end of this entire movie right it's true he is and he's kind of forgotten about which i thought they were going to wrap something up at the end but they didn't yeah i was kind of hoping to see him like re-emerge at the end but they really didn't do uh any um what's that like uh not foreshadow but you know where you drop a uh he's not quite dead you know, sequel on the way. Yeah, right. A little tease. Yeah, unless maybe there's a tease at the very, very end, but I, I didn't watch it. Is there it. a post credit scene? I don't know. I didn't I didn't watch it. Oh, man, we, we might have messed up here. If there That's is fine, fun, somebody let us know. <laughs> we mess up all the time. But anyway, I thought it was interesting how as soon as, you know, the action sequence ends and the cops all point guns at the Incredibles, even the baby, and they're like, freeze. And then they arrest the Incredibles. Then they have this little conversation in this interrogation room where the cops say that the Incredibles stopping the Underminer or trying to stop the Underminer were doing a bad thing, that they should have just let the Underminer do what he's going to do. And then insurance would take care of it, which kind of makes me wonder if you're saying that laws shouldn't be enforced, then why are there cops? in this universe. If if the only thing that should happen is that a crime gets committed and an insurance company is alerted, which would just, if, if insurance companies are gonna handle everything, then insurance premiums are gonna go through the roof. Because kind of the point of an insurance company is to like insure like a whole bunch of gold or something, like insure all your valuables, but then you just like sit them out on your lawn and like not protect them at all. Like there's gonna be no consequences if you come steal it then the insurance company would go, well, then I'm going to insure it for like an astronomical amount. You know what I'm saying, Daniel? I do, but I don't really follow the analogy because this money is in a bank. There is security in place. There are police. There, you know, I mean, there are defensive measures. They do lock the door. It's not like they don't lock the door. Well, they lock the door, sure, but they're essentially saying that we're not going to do anything if it's stolen. That we're it not going to come better. after you. It would have been better had the illegal superheroes not intervened and, and all this uh, property damage resulted. That's the argument from the police's standpoint. Right. Which I disagree with them because the underminer had laid those charges and was going to sink the bank down anyway. So the uh, amount of additional destruction from the uh, Incredibles trying to stop him, I I. Mean, I how much more destruction was there? Well, okay, so what they're saying, well, from my point of view, they're saying is, is that there should not be any kind of good Samaritanism. Like if you see a crime in action, you should not ever try and stop it because you could do more harm, right? Right. So if, or- if there's ever, like cops shouldn't chase people, 
right? Because you could do more harm. I think you, you, should, make, you could make that argument. And and our, our buddy uh, at Liberty Weekly, Pat McFarlane, he's, he's got an episode where he talks about how the police have no duty to protect you anyway. They have no duty to intervene. Even if there's a crime in progress, they don't have to come to the defense or aid of another. Well, it's true. A court did decide that they didn't have any obligation to protect or to serve. Right. And in many cases, when they do pursue, that's when innocent bystanders do get injured. Correct. In cases, they're actually better off having not doing having not done that. But this is all a pragmatic decision, right? This is all us crunching the numbers and saying who is there more harm one way or the other. But would you say then that the the Incredibles did an immoral thing trying to protect that bank's property? Uh well, I mean if you're Helen and it, it's illegal to be a superhero. Um, not for you. I'm talking you. Well I I think that they were defending innocent bystanders in general. They were attempting to. Like, I don't know if they knew that the Underminer was going for the bank. It was. Does it matter? The Underminer comes crashing out of the earth, damaging a whole bunch of property already with this giant earth mover thing, smashing up a whole bunch of stuff. I think you can leap into action at that point. You're protecting a whole bunch of people's property at that point. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, they were defending people immediately. Right. So, so yeah, no moral issue there. Okay. So it's just a pragmatic view of what do we do? Do we just let him take it and then insure it? Because he's, he's stealing worthless banknotes anyway. He's stealing Monopoly money. Who cares? Well, I mean, if we're looking at what the cops are doing and they're saying, hey, it would have been better had you not intervened. Because it's sort of like... Um, if you're getting robbed, they say, you know, give them give them the money because your money is worth more than your life or worth worth your your life is worth more than your money. You know what I mean? Uh, Assuming they're only going to take your money. Right, right, right. But it's like give in to the demands and then walk away. Save your plane and live to fight another day. Like Top Gun speak. Now, I think that in this movie they're the cops are playing that role of, hey, you guys shouldn't have done this because they need to justify that, hey, supers are illegal and we need to throw whatever we can at you to say, to justify, you know, like that you shouldn't have done something. So we're going to just make up a bunch of shit. But that just that if they're saying that you shouldn't fight crime, doesn't that invalidate their own position? Well, they're saying it to the supers. They're not saying it for themselves. See, it's it's, the rules are different. different. The rules are different for if whether you what costume you're wearing. Yeah. You're wearing a certain kind of clothing or not. You you expect these guys to be consistent, morally consistent? No, I'm saying for us, we're evaluating them. Right. And I'm saying that the reason they're doing this is to pile on and justify, uh, you know, that cognitive dissonance thing to give reason or give weight to uh, justify their decision that, hey, these guys are illegal. Therefore, we have to come up with justifications for why that what they did was bad. Okay, so when a cop is chasing a felon or somebody who is uh, suspected of committing a crime, like somebody, he's trying to stop him or catch that criminal. Any damage that occurs is laid at the feet of the criminal, not the person trying to stop that criminal. So why are the Incredibles being blamed for this property damage and not the Underminer? Well, in my theory, it's because they are trying to throw whatever they can at them to, to justify the emotional... Right, but it's hypocritical. Of course. Okay. All right. I just wanted to establish that. (laughs) They're a pack of hypocrites. All right. They're a pack of flaming hypocrites. Yeah. Good. All right. Established. Yeah. And they're illegal because the politicians don't understand people who do good just to do good. It's it's alien to them. It's true. Okay. So after that, they get arrested, then they get released because Dickers comes and whatever, they get released. But then now they're living in a hotel. The motel. Motel. You're right. It's a motel. What did I really know? And they're having dinner. And the pars start talking about what happened. And dad seems to be some sort of an anarchist type horrific person, some kind of libertarian weirdo. 
because he says that they didn't do anything wrong. And the kids are like, hey, wait a minute, did we do something wrong? Because it felt like we did something totally awesome there. And dad's like, that's right, you didn't do anything wrong. But then the mom comes in and she says that, well, superheroes are legal and the law must be respected. And if you don't like it, there are laws that can in place to change bad laws. Otherwise it's chaos. And the dad goes, but we do have chaos. That's what we have. Yeah. Sounds like the dad's making like, sounds like one of us. No, I would agree with that. And it's also reminds me of that wonderful argument that you'll often have with people when you advocate for stateless society. And they say, well, without a state, then warlords would take over or a new state would emerge. And I'm like, okay, so we're no worse off. That's what we have right now. So, <laughs> oh no, a warlord like like Putin or, or, or Bush or Obama might take over. Oh no. So she's, mom's a tinkerer, but dad is very much like morality. We did the right thing. And she's like, but they decided that what we are is wrong somehow. I mean, I understand a lot of um, people make the argument very pragmatic about it in like, well, you're not supposed to do it because society has said, blah, 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 it's against the law, so don't do it. But we are much of the other argument where we don't care what some politician has scribbled down on some piece of paper. If it's right to do it, it's right to do it. If it's wrong to do it, it's wrong to do it. And it's, it's, it's nice to see that in this movie. And I didn't expect it, but it, it, it felt it felt right to exist that there would be these two characters with these two different perspectives talking about this because it is a world where their entire existence essentially is illegal. Just for being who they are. Right, or at least you know, being who they are and then fighting crime on top of that. It seems strange that the cops wouldn't want them on their side, like hire them or something. But, well, they you know. were working in tandem with government in, in, in the first movie. Yeah. Yeah, it, which is... That, that kind of bothered me. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I, I have much like them on their own, doing what they feel is right. So then, let's see. Well, before you move on, so let's go back to the Helen okay. thing real quick. So she's okay. basically saying... <clears throat> You've got to advocate for changing the laws, you know, in that whole like arena of ideas, like get a petition or run for office, join the mafia to change the mafia from the inside, that kind of argument. And yeah, she's a tinkerer. Yeah, she's a tinkerer. And also you mentioned pragmatic or practical, I think, uh, because in a way I'm, I'm a bit practical in the, yeah, when a road pirate pulls me over, they're in the wrong, but they're not going to see it that way. So I'm not going to put up too much, you know, like conversation. Moral indignation. <laughs> right. And definitely no physical resistance. Otherwise, they're going to go over the, you know, they're going to over, overgo. They're going to escalate. They're going to escalate. They're going to step over the line big time. And I want to, you know, get out of that situation. And they're not there for some kind of moral debate. They're there to rob you. They, they don't care. Right. Yeah. And, and they need to control that situation uh, the entire time from beginning to end. So I'm practical in that sense. Like, yeah, I may be right, but I'm not going to. This is not the, the venue to have a debate, basically. Right, you're out. You're outgunned at that point because they can always call in backup. Yeah, and you're on their turf, and and they're not there to listen to you. Well, right. I take that back. They are there to listen to you in case you incriminate yourself. <laughs> right, indeed. All right, moving on. So we meet the the I don't know what you call it, like the philanthropist businessman guy and his sister, the Howard Schultzian uh, Slip and Jimmy Better Call Saul sort of yeah. uh, free market capitalist guy. Yeah, so he is a, a free market capitalist guy, and he likes superheroes. He loves them. 
and he wants to get him more favored in the public eye to change the law. And we learn about his backstory. And the backstory is that his father was a already a wealthy guy and he loved superheroes also. And he had two like phones in his house and they went direct lines like bat phones to two other superheroes. But the, the, the superheroes get declared illegal and there's a break in at the house and he goes to the phone and he calls on the, the superheroes and, you know, there's no answer or whatever. Or, But it's that whole scenario seemed really unrealistic to me. Like, I get it. You would want to go call these superheroes. But then to have no other defense, so like they have a safe room and there's like a lantern, like, why didn't you just go to the safe room? Blah, blah, blah. Well, you could do both or have the phones in the safe room. Hey, there's an idea. <laughs> or, you know, have a gun or... I don't know any number of things. It seemed like a plot device to get the to give the the villains some kind of motivation. I don't know. It seemed I didn't like it too much. Let's put it that way. What did you think of that, Daniel? No, I agree. There's a lot of holes with that, but also the biggest glaring one is if it is going to motivate the villain, the um, Evelyn, Evelyn Endeavor, Evil Endeavor, right? Um, why would she blame the supers on that when they were declared illegal? Why wouldn't she blame the government and the politicians? for them not being in a position to be able to respond. Even though, just by the act of picking up the phone, even if they'd answered, he's still there with a guy's gun in his face. So Yeah, not nearly enough time for them to get there and react and whatever. And that's true of anything. Like, even if he had called the cops or whatever, no one's getting there within a minute. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when, when you need help immediately and help is, you know, 15 minutes away or whatever. Uh, right, and so this this inspires our villain to be because we get a we get a monologue later on talking about how everybody's becoming over reliant on superheroes, which is kind of a metaphor for being over reliant on cops and government. To me, it is because she's saying it makes you lazy and weak to not you know defend yourself, be your own I guess independent person. I guess you could say. Yeah, but, I must sympathize with that a little bit. And I, I, I sympathize it with it, but okay, okay, this is going to get complicated a little bit. But she's worried about people being overly reliant on things and therefore weakening your individual power, I guess you could say. And to an extent, I understand that there is a real strong um, element in my own life to be like self-reliant and to have like a little vegetable garden and do everything yourself. But, you know, being self-reliant is good, but division of labor is just better. And it's so much better for you to specialize in one thing and do it really, really well and get everybody else to pay you to do that thing really, really well. And then to just buy or farm out the responsibility for other aspects. So I don't really see the problem with the father farming out his defense to another person. He has focused on building this media empire or whatever it is he did, technology or communications or whatever. And he wasn't the best at uh, being able to defend yourself. And yeah, it ended up biting him in the ass. It'd probably be a good idea to have a gun and to, I don't know, put bars on the doors or have a security system or have a, you know, some dogs on the property or have a security guard or two or three on the property. I mean, he's rich, he can afford it. And he, well, he built a safe room. So I, I see the, the villain's point of view that, you know, being independent and being self-sufficient is good, but... I don't know, man, the division of labor is, is, is just, it's allowed the world to become so much better and for so much wealth. It's built so much wealth, which is why the An, Ancom primitive people, the Anprivs, anarcho primitives who, who want to get rid of division of labor and everybody go back to, you know, Pol Pot style, working the land, tilling the land and 
it just makes it makes no sense to me. Yeah, we're all self-sufficient. Great. We're all living in dirt. Fantastic. Because nobody is working on the computers and nobody's working on the refrigeration system and, you know, specializing. No, I'd agree. Yeah. And it is, uh, it's really hard for me to understand the Evelyn Devers uh, screen slavers position because she's against selling things, right? She's sort of against money. She's very tech savvy. And so she, she advocates in her own division of labor, right? Being very specialized in a very specific area. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I mean, you can't really expect people to be consistent, right? That's just not how humans tend to operate, I guess. Especially, well, she's super not consistent because she's also against like screens, but she uses screens all the time throughout the entire movie. She's constantly watching a screen to check in on what her minions are doing and to see what Helen or what's her name, Helen, Helen, Elastigirl, yeah, yeah, Elastigirl's doing. Yeah. I mean, screens are doing good things, allowing them to do good things throughout the whole movie, but then she seems to be against them. Well, she's using them to like watch Helen. She's watching Helen. And using them to hypnotize people, by the way. Yeah, and, and she's using them to do bad things like because she's she's basically, you know, the pulling all the strings. She's orchestrating the whole thing behind the scenes here. But uh, do you think Brad Bird was making comment to society in general where everyone's got their cell phones? They're walking around, you know, like cell phones at eye level. No one interacts with each other. Now it's just all through screens. Yeah. We're talking through a screen right now. Right. For sure. Yeah. Um, at one point, there's uh, Screensaver's monologue. Well, Helen's tracking him down to the pizza guy place and it says something like um you know lay back and assume your interests are being served and your rights upheld so that the system can keep stealing from you smiling all the while and if you're talking about government i think it's really on point lay back and assume that your interests are being served and your rights are upheld which the government is actively infringing upon all the time so that the system can keep stealing from you yes taxation is theft smiling all the while politicians are constantly smiling all the time as they rob you i think it's fantastic but it's actually talking about i don't know what the system of tv screens I, i'm not really sure what her point is well i i think most people watching this would think that she's talking about capitalism or consumerism and corporatism you know business is distracting you and stealing from you robbing you uh, robbing what from you it's actively making your life better all the time or else you wouldn't do it i well, mean tv's can be a bad thing i i agree like they can send out bad programming to you and whatever but it's also something that has brought a ton of joy and information to people where it wasn't available otherwise. It can allow you to multitask. You can get all kinds of entertainment and enjoyment into your home where otherwise you would have had to go out and go to a play, which was usually really expensive. It only happened rarely. Is something, you know, it was like, relegated to the rich where now everybody's got a flat screen and that's not necessarily the greatest thing but it's obviously a benefit of capitalism and wealth otherwise you're going to watch a show like once a month maybe i don't know i mean maybe in the, your free time instead you're going to read a book which would have been better but you know people prefer it are you going to say I, something i'm not sure how to respond to that um are you are you on are you on board with screen slaver are you saying that do you think that she has a point there? The TVs are bad. Screens are bad. Well, I think they can be. I think people can get absorbed into things, but you know, it's individual choice if that's what they want to do. I mean, it has made communicating far more effortless and being entertained on the go far more effortless. Um, and it's also given the government more reason to intrude in your life, like in your car, like you can't use your phone in your car anymore. And I'm sure there's a higher prevalence of accidents as a result. But I think that there's free market solutions to that. We don't need to initiate violence to solve a problem like that. It seemed like she was making a moral claim 
about technology, but it seems to me like technology is morally neutral. It's how you use it is what makes it immoral or immoral. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Any tool can be used morally or immorally. It's just an inanimate object. And it seems, you know, it's strange that she would pick out screens because that seems to be the, the whipping boy du jour, but people are always complaining about the march of technology and how bad it is. I mean, there was a recent, um, Tucker Carlson interview where he was bemoaning automated cars and how it would destroy the trucking trucker people and how we would never get those jobs back and all those families would just starve because yeah, truck- just seeing Logan or something. These truckers couldn't do anything else ever and it'd just be the end of the world. Yeah, Tucker's terrible on economics. He's he's almost as bad as Bernie Sanders. It's really shocking. He should know better. I mean, I Bernie should also know better, but the fact that Tucker actually talks to people that should know about economics, whereas I think Bernie is in some sort of weird socialism bubble. I don't know. No, yeah, I'd agree. All right. So what did you think about the, I felt like another sort of societal current eventsy thing got thrown in here, and that was the male versus female situation with the uh, Slip and Jimmy saying, we need Helen to be the face of the campaign to get the public behind us instead of Mr. Incredible. And there was a little bit of this um, undercurrent of animosity between the two. Like they were in competition for, you know, who's going to be, who who's the right person to be the face of this. And, and they were throwing out like, because the gender of each was like an issue. I don't know. It was, it definitely felt like they were kind of throwing that in there. And I, I feel like they were pandering a bit with that. There's definitely some girl power type stuff in there. And that was a bit annoying, especially when Helen was talking to the screenslaver girl, just like as a girl chat time. Like, oh, yeah. yeah she's girl. Manipulative. She's using that to like get her on team, you know, feminist or whatever. and Like buddy, buddy. Sure. No, yeah, there was definitely some of that. Although I think they also have a bit of a point in that I probably would have picked Helen also if I were doing that exact same plan. Although I might've picked Frozone. Well, he's but... pretty badass. He's probably my favorite character in this. But yeah, Frozone's just a stud. He's probably the most powerful guy. I mean, he can just do anything for the most part, but he's also just badass. Anyway, I mean, I, if their goal is to you know fight crime with as little property damage as possible, then you're going to pick a guy like Frozone who could just freeze everything and then have the ice just melt harmlessly, you know, essentially. Or yeah. Helen, who is, you know, pretty and doesn't smashy, smashy stuff too much. And she's rubbery, right? Right. Yeah. Now, this whole thing sort of reminded me because they, they do bring it up and then they sort of play with it a little bit. And then when Helen does decide to go and help these guys, uh, Craig T. Nelson's character says, well, you go get us, you know, legal again so that I can do it better. You know, right. sort of like a little tongue in cheek, like funny haha thing. And that reminded me of that old commercial, the um, Michael Jordan versus Mia Ham. I think it's a Gatorade commercial, maybe. And it's a song like anything you can do, I can do better. I'll, I'll try to find a YouTube clip of it and torture our audience on the show notes page. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. I don't remember exactly the Mia Ham bit, but I remember that anything you can do, I can do better. I think that was a like an ad campaign of some kind. Yeah, and it was it was definitely like this uh, boys doing something, then girls doing something, and like being competitive with each other. And this is way before all this like gender nonsense that's been going on these days. Because now, like, well, we talked about this, I think, on uh, the last episode. Now there's transgendered people like competing in events that are intended for biological men or women. And they're like, because they are genetically different, hormonally different, all these things, they're just dominating in these events, right? And so it's like destroying the entire point of doing them. Yeah, they're pretending as if it doesn't give them an advantage to have 
had, you know, testosterone pumping through your body for X number of years, it actually absolutely does have an effect on your physiology. Why wouldn't it? But they just pretend like it doesn't because today, you know, you identify as a woman. So there you, before you get to, you know, race against women, I, it's madness to me. But if it's a private organization, I don't care. If you want to have, open it up. I mean, they, you know, they're all trophies. It's all made up anyway. I mean, I don't have a dog in the fight, but it is kind of insane to pretend like it doesn't have an advantage. Right. Well, because you do and play this out like so. Let's say that you have a league and you decide to allow this to happen. Um, are the competitors that you're that you have, are they going to continue to want to be in that league and compete in that way? Or are they going to go to a new league that sprung up because there's an opportunity? Well, do you do you, what you just said made me think of the, the, the Boy Scout Girl Scout news? Did you hear all about all this? Yeah, that is crazy too. There's a thing called Girl Scouts. Okay, there's a thing called Girl Scouts, but they, you know, got angry at the Boy Scouts for not accepting girls. So the boys said, "Okay, you guys can come in and now we'll have the just the scouts. We'll just be the scouts." Okay, fine. Now, there's a section of the scouts that is for girls only. <laughs> So why didn't you just keep it with the Girl Scouts and then the boys could just be the Boy Scouts? I don't understand. Why do you have to take over something and then exclude the boys? Because they're never satisfied. It's like, you can't have a thing. We're going to come in and we're going to take it over and then we're going to exclude you from your thing. Why don't you just have your own thing? It's hilarious. But anyway, um, yeah, so there would be a market response from that, right? From you having your own league and you had it your way, you where you accept all the the trans people and whatnot, and then another league where they wouldn't, and let the market decide. Yeah, because I imagine that the league that would allow anyone to compete in that way would have fewer eyeballs, you know, fewer tickets and fewer, uh, you know, fewer competitors actually wanting to participate in it. It would definitely, I think it would definitely disincentivize biological women from competing against the the non-biological women. Yeah. Because you're at a disadvantage. You're at an inherent disadvantage. Maybe you want to put yourself up against that. Maybe you don't. Maybe you want to compete with the biological men. Go for it. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't affect me in any way. <laughs> Yeah, I'm probably not going to watch it. I mean, I don't watch the WNBA either. So, you know, <laughs> well, neither does anybody else. <laughs> All right. Now, I know we're actually getting pretty long here already, but I know you wanted to talk about the dad being with the kids and having that role reversal where, you know, he's usually out there being the crime fighter and the mom was taking care of the kids. But because they want to have that perception of this, you know, cute girl who's less destructive out there, she's in that role. So now dad has to take this role with the kids taking care of the family. And yeah. And at that point, it felt like a TV episode, like a like a sitcom where dad was the stay at home dad now all of a sudden and and Pratt falls and Sue. Yeah, there's a lot of like wacky stuff with the baby doing wacky stuff it, it didn't really that's where i think the movie kind of falls down a bit for me but the um i didn't really quite understand bob's character because he he seemed to really take it at a hit to his pride that they chose helen for this job where he's like mr incredible and i my identity is super important to me and blah 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 but now i'm mr stay-at-home dad guy and i'm really bitter about my wife going out there and doing things and i don't want her to succeed but then i kind of do but then i mostly don't it, it seemed weird because wouldn't you want your family members to succeed i mean if you love somebody you want them to good things to happen to them and to do well but when she saves the train he like he's like pretending to be 
be happy on the phone talking to her, but in reality, he's like turning on the phone and he's like almost irate, losing his shit. Well, because he wants it to be him, you know, he he's used to doing that. That's what he views his role to be. So I'm sure he's happy for her, but he's like, man, I'm missing out on doing this. So I could totally see him being conflicted. And I thought that was played up pretty well. And let's talk about that train a little bit uh, when, when we finish your thought here. Well, but isn't raising the children like an equally important task? Like, I understand, you know, that's why the division of labor is so good. You've got one parent that is raising the kids or at home, you know, not in- entirely, but a lot of the day. And then you got another parent that's out like bringing home the bacon and both roles work together to make a cohesive unit that succeeds. But now that this role is reversed, he's like butthurt about it. I don't know. He's, it's like he doesn't see the inherent value in what he's doing until later on. I guess that's this er- character arc. But it just seems unrealistic to me that he wouldn't inherently see the value in it immediately. Well, it did just happen as well. I mean, it was just, you know, events happen. And then it's like two days later, Helen's out saving this hover train, which reminded me of the California train that they were building to nowhere. And I guess they shut that down now after wasting $14 billion. I don't don't know exactly how much money they they, uh, threw down a hole and burned, but I guess they're not doing it anymore. What are you talking about? I don't know anything you're saying. The California bullet train, he was supposed to go from like L.A. to San Francisco and you could. Uh, Is this the Elon Musk tunnel thing? No, no. This was the, the state. The state. So there was a, a boondoggle project in the government project and it didn't yeah, work a out. Yeah, billion dollar. Color me shocked, sir. Bullet train that would get you from L.A. to San Francisco in like two hours or something like that. And uh, they said it was going to cost like three billion and then it was like nine billion and then it was like 20 billion. And it hasn't been built like a bunch of the work had been done. But then they scrapped the thing. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, said we're putting this thing on hold or, or canceling it. This is all, you know, a couple of weeks ago. So well, I'll... The, 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 the California's broke. Oh, yeah, totally broke, even though it's like the seventh or eighth largest economy in the world. With the highest amount of poor people. It's the highest poverty rate and the, and the highest. Re- it's, it's, it's awesome. The place it's is a shit. The highest out. regulations. Yeah, it's, it's great fun. You know, when um, I, I used to do some work for uh, a nationwide company and we would print things for them. And we had to have a California version and a rest of the country version because you had to have the font be a certain size on the California one. <laughs> That's awesome. And it made it be like extra pages. <laughs> well, yeah. And isn't there, you know, whenever there, you buy a product in California, it says like the state of California has determined that this may c- cause cancer or something that contains cancer causing agents. I don't know. Do, do people just print that on all their packaging? No yeah, where they're throwing it. everything. I, I rented a car there and it's like on the glass in the car. It might as well just say California may give you cancer. <laughs> and I think they're not wrong. I think it's spreading through Oregon and up to Washington now. It is. Absolutely. It's spreading. The, it the, is. the cancer of more regulations, more taxes, more socialism. It's, it's on the East Coast, too. Big time. But anyway, we knew that. Yep. All right. So people have more trust in monkeys throwing darts than Congress, which I thought was a fun line. But uh, oh, back to Bob. Um, raising the the family a little bit. Uh, he he helps Dash with his homework, and they're talking about this new mathematics. And I know that was a a, a thing about Common Core, how they say you know you do math differently. You have to think about it in like chunks or blocks or something. And and like anyone who was <laughs> in you know school like ten or more years ago will have no idea how any of this works. And um, I like Bob's comment where he's like. How do you what what do we change math? Math is math. What's going on here? Why you know what is this new math stuff? Why are they changing it? And uh secondly, it, it reminds me of um Henry Hazlitt had a book that came out uh refuting everything in Keynes's 
general theory called the failure of the new economics. And unfortunately, it didn't get super popular because the general theory, which is hocus pocus bunkum, Keynesianism garbage, um, just stand stood uh, basically popularly uh, overtaking, you know, like intellectual circles and not not because it went out in the argument. It went out in popularity. Just like all politics, doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. It's popularity contest. Well, and and uh, Howard Schultzian um, says that when he says why the why the supers are illegal is Bob says it's because of ignorance, and Slip and Jimmy says no, it's because of perception. And he's right; it's it's how people are seeing them, how they're being viewed as, you know. Right, which is a, kind of a weird thing because this movie doesn't change that. I don't think. Like, there's a at what point do like the average person get to see, you know, a, a superhero doing a great thing other than, I guess, Helen with the train. But at the end of the movie, yeah, they save the day kind of when not having this boat crash into the city directly. They kind of like side swipe it into a road or whatever. But the general public doesn't get to see all the heroic stuff that the superheroes did. Right. What they saw the, was the worldwide broadcast of them doing a bad thing. Yeah. And then the boat crashing into the city. So how does... You know, how does the plot get resolved? It doesn't. It's just kind of like they show this superhero pose shot at the end of them standing on top of this boat. Like, yeah, we did it. And then they arrest the uh, screenslaver girl. But there's no real resolution to the actual theme of the movie, which is we're going to show the world that superheroes are great and that that shouldn't be illegal and that, you know, everybody can help out and fight crime themselves and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. It seemed like an incomplete movie to me. Well, it's not like you're wrong <laughs> on that. Uh, I mean, they were doing a signing ceremony where they were making superheroes legal again. Um, but then there's that broadcast where they're saying, you know, we're tired of taking your shit and we're going to do bad things to you now when they were under the screen slavers control. Right. And that's out there, buddy. That's out there. That's been broadcast. Yeah, with the wearing the weird goggles that are obviously screenslaver goggles, like they've never seen these superheroes everywhere that before. There's a throwaway line from the screenslaver lady is like, oh, yeah, I updated them with new technology. They can like see heat seek and whatever, blah, blah, blah. Aren't they cool? And the Howard Schultzian guy is like, yeah, OK, fine. And he buys it. But I don't know. Yeah. What else? What else should we say? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm at, I'm at a loss for words. So, all right. So so you're going to be Mr. Mediocre here. Yeah, Mr. Mediocre. The action scenes are really cool for the most part, although I didn't understand how the whole baby thing, like they really focused in on this baby as being a big chunk of this movie. And then the baby just kind of accidentally saves the day for the most part. But there's one shot where the baby turns into a, a demon and then Bob has to like give it cookies in order for it to turn out of, out of a demon again. But then later on, when they're on the boat, the baby's a demon and Violet just picks up the baby and is like, Jack, Jack, shoot your laser beam eyes. And he transformed out of being a baby, a demon baby. And I didn't understand how that was possible. Like it, the movie didn't set up that that was the reason why like she could just do that. So why didn't anybody just do that? Just like, stop, stop being a demon baby. Okay. I don't know. It didn't make any sense. Am I making sense? Again, you're not wrong. I mean, maybe it's now that they've made this connection with Jack Jack and he's more aware of his powers and, and they can sort of communicate with, I mean, what is he like not even a year old? Um, but they figured out how to, how to direct him to use his powers in a way that they desire. I don't know, but you're right. They definitely don't build to that. They do spend more time with him, like with the kids and, and, uh, things happening, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, I would say that this is a flawed movie. 
it's 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 fun, but it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It, it seemed to be like half of a movie, and it was long enough. I mean, it's over like two hours, but it didn't seem to have a cohesive narrative. Like it seemed to have too many ideas stuffed into it for it to be a real cohesive kind of, this is the idea that we're going for in this movie. It seemed to be a bunch of things and they're all like halfly resolved. With exciting horn music. Horn music? Yeah. You know, the pow, zip, zang, zoom type music, like similar to the first movie. Oh yeah. Okay. I know what you're talking Very about. Very brassy. Right. Yeah. I, I, I enjoyed the, the music in this and, and actually in the credits, which I did watch some of, they do the superheroes songs that uh, Slip and Jimmy had sung to them earlier. They actually do renditions of them with full instrumentation and everything in the credits. Now that's fun. Frozone song and Elastigirl and Mr. Incredible. That's fun. I did really like the, um, the train sequence where she was chasing after on the motorcycle bike. Oh, my kids want that bike. <laughs> It was really badass. I, I really enjoyed the use of her powers. That's one thing these movies do really well is having people with having their certain power set. And it's not like they forget how to use their powers later on in the movie. In a lot of movies like X-Men, there's uh, in the X-Men Apocalypse movie. In the beginning of the movie, Apocalypse can just like decapitate people with sand. He's like a super telekinetic and he can just have a couple grains of sand fly through your neck and then your head falls off. And then he never does it again ever in the rest of the movie. Well, in this movie, the characters know their powers, except for Jack-Jack, who seems to be a Swiss army knife power, whatever is needed at the time. He seems to be a real lazy Mary Sue kind of a character. Like, well, we need Jack-Jack to be able to do this right now in order to beat the bad guys. Okay, he just does it naturally and he doesn't have to try hard and whatever. Kind of deflates any kind of tension. But um, every other character, it's a real... They have powers and they know how to use them to the best of their ability and they try and it doesn't feel like, you know, one character's holding back so in service of the plot, which I appreciate. Yeah, and in uh, the very first one, Violet is still learning her power and she doesn't trust it just yet. And so they did a real nice arc with that, with her saving her brother and her um, and, or her whole family by the end in the very last moment, like without really trusting that her power could do it. But she she eventually did. And she did it again in this one, but it was more old hat. You know, now she has the ability to do it. I do think they didn't use Dash very well in this one, though. They didn't use him very much. And when he was running around and whatever, it didn't look as fast as speedy gonzalez as he was in the first one you know yeah definitely not definitely not there was effect um i think they did him differently in this one yeah they seem to do him they slowed him down and barely used him it's true maybe because he's too overpowered so they just didn't use him because a really fast character can pretty much just solve everything like almost instantly you could have it's like with a flash i mean in, in reality his powers are so He's so powerful that he could just he could knock you out with just by swinging his arm just from the the concussion of the compressed air going by would knock you out. But he doesn't because, you know, there has to be some sort of dramatic tension. Maybe they created a character that's just too powerful with Dash. I don't know. But let me talk about one thing that I really, really liked about this movie. And this is like a super cheese ball moment. And it might re- like expose all the amount of soy in my body. I don't know. <laughs> but but there's a scene with Violet where she is confronting the boy that stood her up in the in the school next to the lockers. She is animated so well in that scene. I really like the facial expressions where she is showing a lot of vulnerability and awkwardness and anxiety and you know sadness and frustration. And I just want to give a shout out to the animators in that scene. It was really well done. Well, it is Pixar. I mean, this is some top quality shit right here. Yeah, I really liked what they did with Violet in this movie. It might have been a little bit on the nose and a little bit obvious, but I thought I, I, I really liked her character. Well, that's good. Well, at least you have core beliefs, which is the thing that Helen says to the Evelyn Dever at the end, because she's a bit of an nihilist at the end there, too, isn't she? Devers? Yeah, Evelyn Endeavor. Evelyn Dever. She's very pragmatic, 
And I forget what she oh, said. Oh, just because you saved me doesn't make you right? Is that what, is that yeah. what she says? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Helen's like, well, at least I have principles or core beliefs. So Evelyn Endeavor didn't learn anything. She still thinks she's right. And she sees the Incredibles as the bad guys. Oh, by the yeah. way, if you're going to fall out of an airplane at that altitude and speed, you're not going to make it. I'm sorry. I watched the you... documentary on D.B. Cooper, the guy who um, stole like a million dollars on an airplane and then jumped out at like 30,000 feet from yeah. a from a jetliner. They're like, yeah, at that altitude, you would get torn up. Just like, by jumping out into the air? Yeah, by jumping out in the air at that speed and at that altitude, like uh, there's not enough oxygen, so you get asphyxia and then something would happen to you where you'd basically <laughs> get exploded. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know the science on this. I'm just remembering a, a documentary I saw probably 25 years ago. So this is, take it with a big fat chunk of salt. Like everything I say. Okay. On I right. mean, it, it's like paying a price for a choice you never made, which I think Bob Parr says. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what he says to Violet. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. I heard that. And I'm like, oh, you mean like voting? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think that we should probably get some final comments in and then do our summary and review. So take I have no further comments. This was a mediocre cash grab movie that obviously grabbed a lot of cash. I don't think it was as originally, you know, as inspired of a film as the original Incredibles, uh, which I still hold as one of the best superhero movies of all time. This movie felt like a sequel. It didn't feel as inspired. Um, the character motivation seemed fairly muddled, especially with the villain. Uh, yeah, it just didn't seem like a very focused film. So anyway, I'm going to give this uh, middle of the road. I think this I think kids might like this more than adults. But if you're an adult, you can probably still turn off your brain and still kind of enjoy a lot of the more action -y bits and some of the character moments. So I think this is a five and even five, even even Steven flip a coin. All right. Wow. OK. Um, I think that my impression is going to be a little bit better. I was happy to see that they made a, a sequel and apparently a lot of people did. I mean, $1.2 billion on, on a $200 million budget six bagger. It's, it's surprising to me in a way because sure it's Disney, sure it's Pixar. I didn't think that the original Incredibles was like super popular. I thought it was more of the, um, you know, lower on the, the ranking of popular Pixar movies. I figured that WALL-E would be way up there and Up was a big deal and Toy Story, the trilogy there. I didn't They're think they're making another one. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's coming out um like in May or June or something. But um I didn't realize that this one had that big of a following. It it remember when we did uh, Blade Runner 2049 and it seemed like they were making a movie for the fans and they were really expecting it to do well because they thought there was this hardcore, intense fan base that was just going to come out and see it. And it disappointed heavily at the box office, even though the movie was really well done. I mean, it was like like a love letter to the fans of that of Blade Runner. And to contrast that with The Incredibles here, I, I had no... I don't think there's that like strong of a fan base for for this, but maybe it has just a wider appeal. And maybe that's kind of that lowest common denominator kind of thing. Like, it's yeah, I think you you get the kids, you get the the nostalgia from the first movie, the kids that watched it when they were growing up. You know, you got you know, like the seven and eight year olds that are now in their early 20s. They're going to watch it. And then you also got the huge superhero crowd. So, yeah. Right. And superheroes has it, it went through a long period of mediocre superhero movies. And then I guess in the last five, 10 years, they've gotten pretty decent. I guess Dark Knight, that trilogy sort of helped boost it back up. And then some of the Marvel stuff. Marvel's kind of been hit or miss. I mean, you're more the uh, the connoisseur of that of that realm. And I think we should do another uh, couple of Marvel movies at some point. Like Civil War, I hear has plenty of good discussion points. Infinity War, supposed to have a bunch of good 
discussion points, um, Winter Soldier. Yeah, all that stuff. Anyway, I'm yes, talking, all those things. Talk about Incredibles too here. Um, I did like the uh, somewhat um, libertarian messaging in here. It seems like Brad Bird might be uh, a bit woke in our respect. Um, I didn't view the Screenslaver monologue or screed as the way that you did, but I, I'll go back and re-listen to it. And because you're right, I mean, what you told me, it does directly apply to if they were talking about government, it would be spot on. But I think that the intention was, uh, have you seen Mr. Robot, that um, TV series? No, I've heard good things, but I haven't watched it. Yeah, we just started watching it. It, it seems really well done, but he's like, he's against money and corporations. And so it's sort of like how I envision the the screen slavers screed to be was to meant to be against capitalism and against business and against money or caring about money. Could I interject one question real quick? Yeah. If Mr. Robot's against money, what is his alternative solution? I'm getting there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I watched the first episode last night, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you a more further report later on. Just but guns and everybody's faces all the time. That is in, in the, uh, the gold speech in uh, Atlas Shrugged, that is the alternative, which is a great speech, by the way. The Danconia speech. I'll put a link to that on the show notes page at lastnighters.com. So 60, which, uh, you know, I'll just go with that. Six. A 6.0 is my rating. So a little bit higher than you. 6.0 for episode 60. So that's Incredibles 2, everyone. There you go. One more. One one question about the movie, Daniel, before we wrap this up. Um Evelyn seemed to be wanting to live in a world without superheroes. I am very much of the opinion that I would love to live in a world with superheroes. They seem to be very specialized at doing one specific thing very, very well, better than I ever could. Like I couldn't fight, you know, the underminer, but the Incredibles could. But he gets away. Yeah, he gets away, but he would have like kicked my ass and then some. He would have kicked the cop's ass and then some. At least the Incredibles put up a fight. They'd be far more successful than I ever was. And Frozone just dominates everybody. I mean, why would you want to see that and go, no, thanks. Get out of here, specialized people that are really good at doing things. No, thanks. Well, would yeah. you want to live in a world where superheroes are real, Daniel? I think we do live in a world where superheroes are real. There are people doing incredible, magnificent things every day. And our lives are far better off as a result of it. And it's all from the, the division of labor, like you were talking about earlier specialization and uh, capital and uh, elongation of the capital structure and, and satisfying consumers' wants and desires. There's things that weren't dreamed of 50 years ago that are commonplace today. So it's true. Miracles happening all the time. We live better than the kings of hundreds of years ago. And I want people in a couple hundred years to look back at our times and go, what squalid poverty these people lived in. Because I want their <laughs> lives to be so rich and wealthy, they can look back and go, oh my God, can you imagine? What a nightmare. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that, uh, and we can end on this. I think Evelyn perhaps was saying that she didn't like the the inequality of abilities. She wanted to make... <laughs> you know? I'm not as good as Mr. Incredible, so that he shouldn't exist. Because that was kind of a theme at the end of the first one, right? They wanted Dash to not show his abilities to be... Yes, to be Mr. Mediocre, get second place. Mm -hmm. So maybe that uh, carried through. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sort of making shit up at this point, but that's what I do. Me too, buddy. Now, Robert, next week, I think we're going to do another episode, you and me. Uh, you really enjoyed that movie, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Is that correct? You bet your bottom dollar. Okay, and that's the Coen Brothers, and it's out on Netflix. So if people want to check that out, it's six little Western vignette kind of stories, little encapsulated stories that are sort of the same genre, but they're completely distinct and separate from each other. Yeah, I mean, they're all told in the same kind of tone 
Coen Brothers tone, but there's nothing relating from one story to the next, that's for sure. That I can tell. Right. But you gave it super high praise. And so you said, if I watched it and saw anything in it, perhaps we should do it. And I think there's plenty to talk about in there. So let's do that next week. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Sweet. I already I watched it just recently and I can't wait to watch it again. So such a fun film. I mean, not that every vignette is, you know, a laugh riot or anything. I wouldn't say there's anything that's really a laugh riot. It's just it's just a quirkiness and a tone that you just don't get in other movies with the Coens that I, I really enjoy. All right. Well, that's what we'll do for next week. So uh, thank you guys for joining us for this episode. You can find the show notes and more at lastnerds.com slash 60. If you'd like to get some uh, early access or pre-show and post-show, uh, you can join us uh, by supporting us on Patreon at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. You can also find this on the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. And uh, I think that's it. So I will say good night from last night, everyone. Peace out. And we'll continue the transmission for a bit longer on the Actual Anarchy podcast. This is episode 117 of the show. You can find the show notes more at actualanarchy.com slash 117. That is 117, just in case you got confused, because, you know, it's an audio format, so you never know. So, Robert, there was um, there was something else in the credits after the badass superhero songs, the renditions of the songs, and that was they had a department called Inclusion Strategies in the credits. And I'm curious what you think that means, because I think it means acquiescing to the demands of the Twitterati and the SJW types. This is a real department inside Pixar. According to the credits. Inclusion strategies. Yes. Absolutely. That sounds like they're pushing diversity for the sake of diversity. Yay. I mean, we were... Pixar's going downhill like Disney's going downhill. I mean, you know, Disney's been SJWing up Star Wars for the past couple of years. Kathleen Kennedy is an avowed feminist. Brian Johnson is also an avowed feminist. Um, currently, Brie Larson with the, is uh, an avowed feminist, and she's been making all kinds of overtures towards the the um, feminist slash cat lady type crowd and getting rid of um, white men from watching like her movie. So it's yeah, exciting time. Do you think that this is them attempting to satisfy consumers? Do you think that the consumers are demanding this? Or do you think that this is more of like no, a hostage is, situation? No, this is them trying to shape public opinion. This is them pushing their ideology. This is them thinking that feminism is going to lead to a better world. And therefore, we should push this in our movies, showing people how to behave, how this is going to be better for everybody. They truly believe this. This is them pushing intersectionalism and inclusion for the sake of inclusion and diversity for the sake of diversity. And this is what they think. This is the ideology. This is them. Not necessarily. I think they think that pushing an ideology is more important than telling a good story and entertaining your audience, which is why I think eventually this stuff is going to fail. I mean, anytime, anytime you're an artist overly pushing a political message or an ideology at the expense of the art, then the audience is going to notice and be turned off because the people that you're pandering to are going to enjoy it, but you're alienating everybody else that would otherwise enjoy your art. Right. And these longstanding properties that have a, a rabid fan base that have built up over the years are, of course, going to be shat upon uh, in favor of these. I don't even want to call them um, what would be a good term for them, like fair weather fans. I mean, they're not even really fans as per se. Right. They're they're like they're barely consumers like like they keep trying to make um, 
all the Marvel comics, not necessarily all of them, but a lot of them, they're like turning Iron Man into a woman. They turned Thor into a woman. They turned, you know, all these people, they relaunched Miss Marvel like seven times or something like that. But the books just aren't selling. Um, they're, they're, I'm sorry, what was the question? Uh, something what did you just say? I had a thought and then I lost it. Pandering and the Fairweather fans, like they're shitting on the real fans to try to satisfy sort of these right fans yeah absolutely and they're suffering in the market for it they're getting a lot of positive press in their bubble like on twitter and whatnot but and then in, in like left-wing kind of gawker type stuff slate and you know all those kind of organ you know huffington post and those sort of things but, but are they not noticing it in the box office for the movies right because they're still making a billion dollars on the star wars movies Right. Uh, yeah, I think it takes them out a certain amount of time to destroy the goodwill. Like in The Incredibles, you had a ton of goodwill going into that movie, so it did really well. But if you keep making these movies, and I'm not saying The Incredibles 2 is bad, but if you keep making movies like The Last Jedi or what are some other kind of solo pandery social justice movies? Well, you, you, know, you didn't say The Incredibles was bad, but you also didn't say it was good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not good. There are good things about it. There are bad things about it. You gave it um, a mediocre score, Robert. Yeah, I'm right in the middle. I'm a fence sitter. I Because I enjoyed some parts of it and not other parts of it. Now, I do you think it, that comics, that world is like in the, the books and, and that kind of thing has a smaller margin for error, for, for messing with the fans? Well, yeah, because you got... The people that buy comics these days are people that are hardcore fans. You have very few fair weather comic book reader fans. You got some, but how many people that don't read comics would hear about a good comic and then go pick it up? Very few. They're far more likely to turn on a YouTube clip or turn on a Netflix or go see a movie than to pick up a thing. So if you're going to all of a sudden change established characters for this, just for the sake of pandering to a small crowd that doesn't even buy comics, you're going to alienate yeah, all your all your established readers. And some of them are going to agree with you, but the vast majority don't like being lectured at. If their politics different from yours, then why would you want to sit there and listen to a lecture, you know, from a character when you just want to be entertained and you're spending your hard-earned money? I mean, comic books cost like five bucks a comic book. It takes like 10 minutes to read one. You're not really getting a huge return on investment for your entertainment dollar compared to a Netflix, which is like seven, eight, nine dollars a month. It's just not that great of return on investment. And you're messing with, you know, uh, probably a dying fan base. Comic books used to sell in the millions back in the 90s. I think X-Men number one is the greatest selling comic of all time. And it sold like three or four million copies. I don't know. I, my numbers are way off, but it, it's, I know it's the number one selling comic of all time. But now uh, these days, a good selling comic sells like twenty to 30,000 copies. It's just, it's just nowhere near the numbers because the competition. And then why would you continue to alienate a dwindling fan base as it is? It's, it makes zero sense to me. But these people are ideologues and they want to push their agenda. They want to make a better world as they see it. But they and then but the funny thing is, is that not only are they alienating their fans, but then they go on Twitter and they insult them. And they claim that anybody that doesn't like their work is a misogynist, you know, bigot, blah, blah, blah. You know, you know, all that stuff. So it's it's hilarious to see all these social justice -y type creators and artists just eat it. I, I applaud it. I, I want them to fail. And I, I don't want people to fail, but you gotta, there has to be, you have to allow people to fail. Yeah, there's, there's when they're not going to be consequences for this type of stuff. And I don't know, it, it, you watch the Super Bowl. Did you see like every other commercial was some SJW kind of? Yeah, yeah, there's some kind of message to it. Yeah, it's, it's getting more and more prevalent. They're definitely pushing, the, you see, as these ideologues get into higher and higher positions, in the corporations, as they move up the chain of command, as the old guard die, these levels of 
ideology are going to be pushed more and more because these people see it as an imperative and not so much about, they're not really capitalists. You know, they don't care about servicing their customers as much as they do changing their minds. So it's a vehicle. They're using the, up the goodwill that has been built up over generations and they're spending that. Uh, spending that currency to change, hopefully change people's minds to their way of thinking. And they're making bad art, in my opinion, because they're pushing an ideology instead of entertaining. They're trying to do both at the same time and it ends up just alienating your fan base. Is that what we're doing wrong? Well, you can't separate us from, yeah, I don't know. Would you call this art? I suppose. Well, we are trying to entertain and educate or indoctrinate, depending on which side of the fence <laughs> the listener's on. I would hope we're not necessarily trying to indoctrinate. I mean, educate about economics. I mean, if, if, if you think we're wrong, you know, argue with us. I'm open to any kind of counter argument. Yeah, hit us up on uh, the Facebooks or you can email us, um, Daniel at ReadRothbard.com or Robert at ReadRothbard.com. Or even better, send us some money on Patreon and then we'll respond to your questions. All right, well, let's wrap this up and get into some Kathleen Turd Overdrive, which is some bonus content that we offer for our Patreon supporters. So if you want to get in on that, go over to actualanarchy.com slash Patreon, sign up for, I think, $5 or more per month, and you'll get all sorts of extra stuff that we talk about. And I think tonight, uh, I want to ask you about the uh, the fake hate crimes. Um, and let's let's get into that a little bit, because that's uh, been in the news lately. Jesse! That's right. Okay, so uh, episode 117 of the show is in the books. It's wrapped up. Check out the show notes and more at actualanarchy.com slash 117. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Peace out. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do. In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.